Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I am Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. We'd ask that you subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. So in America, we used to make things, and now we make podcasts. And uh, so to discuss that, we have Sam Hammond, a return guest for the Urbane Cowboys podcast. Uh, Sam is the director of is it Welfare and Poverty Studies at the Niskanton at the Niskanton Center. Close enough. Close enough. Okay. All right. Great. You were on a few months uh, ago. We talked about various stuff. We wanted to have you back because there have been a number of kind of interesting developments on the right and the left. Elizabeth Warren put out a big policy agenda proposal in her presidential campaign uh, around the theme of economic patriotism, trying to restore jobs and manufacturing to the United States. This was endorsed, uh, strangely enough, by Tucker Carlson, uh, who is not known as a, as a left winger, um, but he's actually said a number of nice things about Elizabeth Warren and some of her ideas. Uh, and then on the right, uh, there's also been some parallel moves by Senator Rubio, He's the chair of the Banking Committee, no, I no, guess, uh, the Business Committee in the Senate. Just all, it, it, all, okay. it has exclusive oversight of the Small Business Administration. Okay, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Let's start with Rubio because they recently released a report that said that the United States needed to embrace something called industrial policy. So first of all, what is industrial policy? And why is this something that is now a topic of of interest? Or should it be? Sure. So industrial policy can be thought of as extremely broad. It just means this sort of set of the panoply of different policies and frameworks that structure the economy that produce a different outcome. And that, that is as abstract as you can make it. But like part of the point, part of the point in that Rubio report is to say that we're moving beyond a kind of neutral framework of uh, economic policy making. So like during the tax reform debate, we talk about uh, let's reduce corporate tax rates because it's a, it's a form of double taxation, and then we get closer to some neutral. Or or let's um, you know allow like during the uh, child tax credit debate, let's let's uh, peg the child tax credit to the payroll tax because that's that's a neutral policy we're not we're not trying to engineer family policies we're trying to just be neutral um so industrial policy is kind of a rejection of that view and says no there are certain high level goals that we want to achieve what that we like outcomes that we want the economy to, uh, to produce um so the way danny roderick has sometimes described it is it's a, a good jobs policy policies that produce jobs that are high like in, intrinsically high paying or high output per worker and not exclusively for people with you know post secondary degrees but that you know encompass um the broad sweep of human capital and so like traditionally that includes a mix of stuff like intellectual property legislation but there's also some more hands-on kinds of industrial policy like you know DARPA and ARPA which helped form you know create GPS and the early internet. Um, you could think of the way we structure labor markets as, a, as kind of complementary to industrial policy. So like one of the reasons Silicon Valley became such a big cluster, uh, at least this people um, hypothesize, is because they don't enforce non-competes. 
Um, and so that allowed technology to diffuse between different Silicon Valley companies. Uh, so all that sort of goes together into forming a, a kind of transfer from research and development to commercialization with the goal of creating high growth firms and good jobs. So uh, I think the, uh, you know, the obvious question with a lot of this is, is it reasonable to expect the government to be able to competently manage and direct the economy in this way, particularly when you're talking about a big nation like the United States, you know, 300 million people spanning a continent? It would be one thing if you were talking about, you know, Denmark or some small country that might need to specialize in just one or two areas. But in the United States, it's big enough. If you have the government saying, well, we think these are the industries that we need to promote or whatever, isn't that A, they're not smart enough to be able to figure that out? And then B, there's kind of a potential for uh, corruption, rent-seeking, political favoritism. Yeah, but, uh, you know, so... My, my first comment on that is that that's sort of a, a evergreen issue in anything we do. And one of the starting points I, I bring up when I talk about this issue is, look, we have an industrial policy. We there, All countries have some kind of industrial policy. There is no such thing as the, the perfectly neutral level playing field. We have you know massive reimbursements for med- the medical industry. We have intellectual property protections that, you know, we're trying to get Vietnam to enforce, you know, uh, copyright against like Mickey Mouse, like so we're, we're um, we have you know policies that in, inadvertently promote particular industries. Uh, in this case, the healthcare sector or the entertainment industry or the pharmaceutical industry, and, and those things, you know, you have, they have to be sort of assessed on the merits. So, is protecting Walt Disney's intellectual property the highest good? Probably not. So. And that, and in fact, it is a perfect example of rent seeking. So the issue is not like rent seeking or no rent seeking, but like we have a set of policies that are in place that are producing particular outcomes. Is it possible to change those policies? And the U.S. historically, you know, the U.S. has a long history of, an, of industrial policy. We, you know, Steve, when Steve Bannon was coming in, he, he talked about the American system. Uh, that that didn't really go <laughs> go anywhere, but that was a real that was a real thing, and we those sort of Hamiltonian policies did help America industrialize. Uh, you could think of the, you know, Eisenhower as, as embracing some of this stuff with the interstate highway and sort of during the cold war period, you know, we did a lot to create new technologies and then facilitate their, their commercialization. And we've kind of forgotten all that. And, you know, since, and this is sort of where the Rubio report is um, a bit heterodox is because it, it, it kind of embraces some of the left critique of like, the neoliberal era or, or whatever you want to call it as sort of thinking that our hands are tied and um, government can't do anything to uh, affect these outcomes. And that it will always be, it will always succumb to these public choice problems. But I personally reject that. I think that uh, there are ways of structuring these programs to make them resilient to, and, and resistant to, capture uh you know later we'll be talking about elizabeth warren's program and i think there's problems with it uh, for exactly those reasons because it doesn't do enough to sort of shield policies from capture like export import bank is basically captured by boeing for example but you know sometimes i worry that the public choice critique is a little bit like special pleading because people it, it, it can apply in literally any context where where policy is changing and people tend to use it 
only uh, invoke it during for things that they don't like and then ignore it for things they do like. Right. As someone who is an advocate for a revenue neutral carbon tax, I have some sympathy for that because I think that people sometimes deploy public choice arguments there in a inconsistent and not very thoughtful way. But it definitely, you know, there are some systems that are probably more susceptible to public yeah. choice problems. And a carbon tax, like I, I would describe a carbon tax as a kind of industrial policy. Like the goal of it isn't just to close the Pigouvian sort of gap between social costs and private costs, but it's also to change the sort of structure of the economy to promote uh, decarbonization and, and the invention and diffusion of low carbon technologies. And so, so you have a, a higher outcome in mind and you're structuring the rules of the game to, to achieve that outcome, but you're doing it in a way that uh, is resilient to some of these problems because you're promoting certain activities rather than picking, like rather than giving money to Solyndra you're, you, or you know, regulating car emission standards or something like that. You, instead, you lay out a more general framework, but then complement it with different things like investments in you know, basic research and at, the, at the federal level which then can be diffused more effectively because there is a price mechanism at play. What would you say is the goal of industrial policy then? Because as I read both in the Rubio materials and then also in Elizabeth Warren and some of the other stuff, there seem to be kind of multiple perhaps goals that, you know, that might point in different directions where sometimes it's talked about in terms of, uh, well, you know, competition with China in terms of like, you know, we need to develop new high productivity industries, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, but then it can also, it also gets talked about in terms of trying to help out, you know, protect communities and jobs, parts of the country that have been left behind or, you know, rural areas or maybe in the, the Rust Belt that have been negatively impacted by globalization, that sort of thing. As you indicated, if a carbon tax is industrial policy because it would create new low carbon technologies, there could be environmental goals, there could be a bunch of other goals. What would distinguish industrial policy from not from non industrial? Well, like policy I said, there's the, the sort of productivity of and good jobs, and and those things kind of go together because you can mandate a higher wage through minimum wage, or you, or you could be more like Germany and have a much tighter wage structure because they have you know basically retained their their manufacturing base, and those are the sort of jobs that people who don't have college degrees or master's degrees or PhDs go into. For me, personally, productivity is, is sort of the, the lodestar, but, um, but it, has, like, it has this intimate connection to uh, supporting struggling regions. And I have a, an initiative through Niskanen called the Struggling Regions Initiative that's sort of looking into all this because, because there really is this sort of like wasted human capital that if we just shunt all, you know, all, all these workers into low-paying service jobs, first of all, their wages are going to be intrinsically low because those are like non-competitive industries uh, and very replaceable kind of work. But second of all, that's just a huge opportunity loss. Like Those people <laughs> could be doing much better things. Um, and one of the sort of fallacies of industrial policy in the past, and it has earned a bad name uh, because it does get associated with sort of cronyism and protectionism, um, but there are kind of two ways to approach industrial policy. The, the way that seems to work and the way that works and that sort of is behind the development success, success stories in like Japan and China and Taiwan uh, revolves around this concept of export discipline. And export discipline is basically the notion that 
you know, exports aren't intrinsically good for some mercantilist reason because we're trying to just, you know, shrink the uh, trade surplus or trade deficit. But exports are good because they kind of accelerate the Darwinian survival of the fittest process because you're pushing companies to compete at the international scale and international competition is like cutthroat capitalism. And so in order to compete, you end up having to make investments in productivity and and labor productivity and and upskill your workers. And that leads to good jobs and that leads to more diversified economy. But you actually, it actually is sort of the opposite of protectionism in a sense, because you're kind of, you're trying to push more uh, firms to be international. And so the China shock, for instance, one way to look at it is not that, you know, agri productivity could have, may have marginally increased, but only because all our lowest productivity companies were forced to shut down. Uh, and then the highest productivity ones sort of shifted into uh, goods that complemented the things that China was now doing. Uh, so we sort of only got like half of the benefits of trade or a fraction of the benefits of, of liberalization because we failed, you know, we, we brought in export discipline, which pushed our companies to be more competitive. Um, but the ones that withered on the vine didn't really get transitioned and the workers and all, all that human capital kind of just, uh, you know, stagnated. Um, and so that does like have a direct tie in with, with the sort of struggling regions is- issue, which is we, we, for historical reasons, we've had, we have, you know, these manufacturers and, and sort of scattered around the country. Um, and w- when we open up to globalization, there's going to be some new equilibrium and that's going to pull people to different places. And that's going to create a lot of frictions in the, in, in, in the interim. And if you don't respond and don't have, policies that militate against those frictions, then you can end up in a situation where you only really get a fraction of the benefits of globalization because all that competition, instead of leading our firms to become better, uh, it leads uh, some of those firms to rise to the top, but the other firms to just shut down and and become sort of uh, blights on communities. One of the areas that you get into is this idea of a um, sheer buyback. And I guess based on this, I assume that Rubio had some things to say about this, but also I've seen recently where Senator Schumer and Sanders have been trying to uh, limit uh, sheer buybacks. We can talk a little bit about the tax issues related to sheer buybacks, but that is not exactly a very sexy topic. And we like to keep this show very, very sexy. So I guess briefly, I, I wouldn't mind having you tell just a little bit about the, the different tax treatment between, say, a sheer buyback versus dividend. But the bigger issue that I really want to get into um, after that is sort of the underlying rationale that there seems to be an idea that corporations aren't investing enough in research and development. But before we talk about that, why don't you touch on what's the difference sort of economically and from a tax policy between a pure buyback and a simple dividend distribution? So like in, in principle, like in pure economic theory, they're not, they're not really that different. The, the main difference is, like you said, with the tax treatment where like dividends get taxed sort of like a capital gains, but buybacks um, are more flexible in the sense that you can you know, roll, roll over the capital to get back directly into a new company and and avoid a taxable event. And at least that's my, my understanding of them. Um, right. And it's some of my background is that I, you know, I have a background as a tax attorney and there's an argument to be made, right. From a sort of pure tax policy perspective that if these are transactions that are economically equivalent, they should have the same 
tax treatment. So there's there's at least sort of a deep in the weeds tax policy argument they should be treated the same. And this is sort of leading into the, the second point. The reason it seems to be coming up is this idea that U.S. corporations aren't investing enough in research and development. And, you know, I don't know if you've researched that, but are you finding that? Because from my perspective, I'm not I'm not convinced. Yeah, it was that is one of the weakest parts, in my opinion, of, of the Rubio investment report. So like some of the motivation is that there has been this kind of secular decline in, in net private domestic investment, just total investment. And simultaneously, there's been this increase in companies that which economists sort of describe as relying on intangible assets like branding and software. And part of the issue in my my view and what I wrote about in that piece is there's just that we have our accounting practices haven't fully caught up. So we, we're detecting this decline in investment, but it seems to be that at least much of it up to at least a third of it is uh, this increase in intangible assets, which we include human capital and talent and stuff like that, which we're not that great at capitalizing or, or you know, putting into dollar terms. And so one of the one of the motivations for this share repurchase backlash is, well, with the, with the tax reform in particular, there's this windfall where all these corporations were getting, you know, had much more cash on hand than they than they anticipated. And so, you know, in theory, share buybacks are useful because if a company doesn't have a lot of growth opportunities, it can buy back its shares and then recirculate that capital into into higher growth companies. Now, Rubio's report like disputed that as a, as a mechanism that is actually working the way it's, it's supposed to, but I didn't quite buy it. And you know, I think part of the reason they're going back to that is because the report is sort of rooted in in a kind of Michael Lind framework. So Michael Lind wrote a book called Land of Promise that discusses sort of the glory days in the, in the 50s where we all, you know, at, you had these big companies like GM that invested in their people and invested in new product lines and stuff like that. And part of the theory there is that before the shareholder revolution, you know, one of the insights of the shareholder revolution is in the earlier sort of manager centric era, shareholders were kind of, they were expected to get a dividend, you know, basically there was like an expected rate of return that they were entitled to. And anything in excess of that would go back into the company. And that would come in the form of higher wages or new investments. But with the shareholder revolution, you had this this sort of insight that, oh, actually, there's this agency cost. There's this distinction between um, what managers have incentives to do and what the shareholders and the owners would like to do. Shareholders are out to get the highest rate of return. But managers, you know, they get a salary. Maybe they have some stock options. But mostly... You know, they're looking out for their particular interests, which might include empire building. It might include, you know, doing all projects that don't really have a high uh, net present value. Right. And so, you know, part of Rubio's thesis is that actually all that stuff that was sort of low net present value that seemed like waste from the perspective of like um, the shareholder revolution, <laughs> post post shareholder revolution, equity, private equity, buyback people was actually not really wasted. It was just some things that were really long term. And so by making it easier for companies to basically say uh, for shareholders to like you know, dis- discipline their managers and say, hey, don't invest in that thing. It's not going to pay off for 20 years. We're going to pull that money out and let it go back into the market that we've entered an era of sort of short-termism. And this is, I think, one of the more controversial parts of that piece because it, it does like, it directly cites like the Roosevelt Institute and and uh, J.W. Mason and some more lefty economists. And I, I, and I frankly just didn't, I don't see that. Like the, there's very little evidence that short-termism has increased in the economy and share buybacks as the mechanism doesn't really seem to be that relevant. It seems to be that share buybacks are highly concentrated in a few sectors like finance and IT. 
uh, where you ha- where you have companies like Apple. Apple, like in 2017, accounted for 14% of all share buybacks. Now, if you have this broader critique that we're moving into an intangible economy and we're not building stuff anymore, we're not building structures and factories and equipment, it's actually not a bad thing that Apple is sending back their capital. Like if, if your goal if your goal is, hey, we got to make it more difficult for Apple to get its excess cash out, so they use that excess cash to invest in their own people and their own products, then actually you're just going to get more iPhones and more highly paid knowledge workers. The irony of this to me is, I, I mean, first off, I, I think that our American companies like Apple, they're already investing enough in, they've determined they're investing enough in, in research and development. But if they do invest more in research and development, they're likely to be even more competitive, which we have concerns from senators that these companies are getting too big. We need to break up the big, big fang companies on one hand. So I'm not sure why we're trying to get them to be bigger. So it's one concern. But also, if if they invest in more R&D and part of this overarching industrial policy is that we want to create jobs for you know blue collar workers, the more we are incentivizing R&D, then it seems to me that there would, at least there's potential for temporary uh, loss of blue collar jobs as more and more jobs are automated. So it seems like this hasn't been thought through is my perspective. Well, I don't think of automation as a, as a negative. I think that's been a bit of a red herring in a lot of the discussion because automation hasn't really been a, a big uh, contributor to employment loss in, in manufacturing. Like if you look at manufacturing productivity. I just mean that in, I just mean that in a temporary disruption since I because I agree with you in the long term that the automation is going to increase you know, overall employment. I, I don't want to I, I mean, I'm going to let you go on, but I, I don't want to say that in, uh, I, because I think we probably agree on that point. Yeah. Well, like if like the China shock example, like take that as an example, if those manufacturers that were sort of hit by a country coming online that had much lower labor costs invested uh, greatly in automation, then what what would happen is they'd move up the value chain, they'd become higher value added, and output per worker would go up. Um, and that happened in some companies, but the majority didn't do that and instead just, just sort of withered. So automation isn't the enemy in this case. Automation is actually how we move. Like the U.S. is not a low-wage co- country. We're not going to compete on wages. We're going to, co- uh, to compete on skill, on capital intensity. And these things are in the short run going to look like more automation. And one of my sort of bigger fears is that the automation worry is actually running counter to the goal of industrial policy. So so someone like Tucker Carlson, for instance, has said that, you know, if if we if it will save jobs, we should we should ban autonomous vehicles, uh, or at least slow their diffusion down uh, so people can transition more easily. I think that's that's actually getting industrial policy backwards. That's 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 an anti-industrial policy because you're basically, you know, preventing product productivity improvements in the economy. The goal should be developing strategies for, uh, to transition those workers, and that's that's a really hard problem. But in the case of manufacturing, there are ways of transitioning workers that build on their their existing capacities and existing skills, and that often will require sort of direct support to manufacturers. So we have programs that do that. We have um, under NIST, uh, the Manufacturing Extension Program. We have a, a network of regional manufacturing innovation centers around the country, uh, and they were established to support, provide grants, pr- uh, provide technical assistance to small and medium manufacturers to upgrade, to 
originally to draw down technology that was that was financed by the federal government. And like we'd be doing doing a lot more of that. Like, I think MEP's uh, budget is about 140 million, uh, which is like it's it's like a, a fraction of the, of the sort of stuff China uh, pumps into their manufacturers uh, or Germany or or. or other countries for that matter. Um, Sam, are, the, uh, are you okay? Are the uh, police coming to get you? <laughs> oh, no, I, I uh, work right next to Union Station, so I think that is the car that, uh, that scares the taxis away. <laughs> that might be a good note to segue to the Elizabeth Warren stuff, because as part of her economic patriotism package, she has obviously also some stuff in there about the need to increase uh, R&D and other stuff like that. But she notes this problem that, 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 Doug, you talk about that could increase offshoring or disruption of blue-collar jobs or whatever. And so in there, I think she has ideas like some sort of you know requirement that whatever's developed from R&D has to be produced in America. Or there's also something in there I, I think about how, like the government would get an equity stake in any new products that were commercialized based on government-funded R&D research. Sam, did you have a perspective on that? Does that sound like good ideas? Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> it's it's a bit confusing. So, you know, Matt Brunig has also been in part of this discussion because he has a proposal where, you know, the, the government basically buys up companies and owns equity shares in it. But someone pointed out that, you know, we have a corporate tax. If you own equity in a company, it entitles you to a share of the profits. That's what corporate taxes do. And I like to me, I don't really see a big distinction between, okay, we funded all these companies through federal R&D. The federal government helps create the internet, and now all these internet companies are making trillions of dollars. So, you know, are we missing out because we didn't because the, the government didn't have, like, some license fee or, or equity in those companies? Not really when they continue to pay corporate income tax. Uh, so I don't really understand that critique. I think I think that this is the problem I'm, I'm having with this sort of resurgence of industrial policy. I'm trying to bring forward the actual academic literature on this, which is which is largely pioneered by folks like Danny Roderick. And there's a lot of myths, and there's myths on both sides. There's sort of the conservative side that thinks it's all about picking winners and losers and, and funding bridges to nowhere. And then there's the sort of left flank, which sees it as an opportunity to kind of nationalize the economy. And it's actually neither. It's, 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 it's the opposite of protectionism. It actually will cause potentially more uh, fast change in our economy if we actually had a, a, a strategy for transitioning workers and, and making it easier for firms to shut down and, and reopen with higher productivity processes. Like that stuff will actually enhance, like I, like I mentioned earlier, the kind of Darwinian survival of the fittest dynamic in the economy. And it has very little to do with, you know, and Warren's plan requiring the federal government to do all its procurement from U.S. companies like that, that actually would probably be a net negative for U.S. competitiveness if, it, if we had to, you know, buy infrastructure from shitty American companies when there's like perfectly good companies in Europe that can sell us rail lines for cheaper and stuff like that. Like that, that is, that is totally misguided. And, you know, my role in this is hopefully to, to try to say, look, I, I understand the philosophical case for industrial policy, but we have to make sure we're updating our views uh, in light of really decades of new research and evidence and, and not, not simply falling back on tropes. 
or in the case of Warren and Trump, a kind of chauvinism. Because th- there are ways of doing industrial policy that can be b- bigger than neighbor, and there are ways that can actually be completely compatible with all countries doing the same sort of policies for their own population. And I, I and I tend to prefer the latter. As mentioned, you know, Elizabeth Warren's plans have gotten a lot of strange new respect from some folks on the right, Tucker Carlson and others. And actually, the first time I believe that Tucker gave extended praise to Elizabeth Warren was about a book that she did before she directly got into politics, a book called The Two Income Trap, which this is a book that I think has has long gotten a little bit of love from conservatives, particularly social conservatives, because the thesis of the book is that the move from single earner families to two earner families, where both the husband and the wife are in the workforce, has not actually been that great. Most of the extra income, it's claimed, that you get from having a second earner ends up going either to, you know, having to pay for daycare or a second car or increased housing or healthcare costs that you might have. You know, there's various arguments about why that might be connected. And so Sam, you wrote something so you wrote something about this recently, uh, kind of looking at what did and didn't make sense from from that book. What what would be kind of your overall summary take on it? Yeah, well like folks like Tucker Carlson, you know, picked up that book because it essentially blames and not in these words, but like the implication is the increase in female labor force participation has kind of destroyed <laughs> uh, economic mobility. <laughs> and, and, you know, women entering, entering the workforce, you know, for, so, for certain social conservatives, it, it seems like a, a kind of schadenfreude point, which is, um, you know, maybe these traditional family structures had a, had a certain wisdom to, to them with stay-at-home mothers. Uh, my, my take on this is, like, I think Warren has a bit of the causality backwards. There has been this massive shift because of deeper trends in globalization and technology uh, towards the geography of work moving towards cities and, and really a few magnet cities. There's really 20 metro areas. And the top of that, like really six major cities that are producing most of the America's output at the moment. And they, they tend to be in these sort of knowledge sectors, IT, finance, insurance, uh, entertainment, biotech. And this pull that the, the, these industries have these intense agglomeration effects where it really pays to, if you want to be a startup founder, to move to Silicon Valley. Uh, but of course, if everyone does that, if everyone wants to start a startup and move to Silicon Valley, you're going to bid up the price of real estate. And real estate is the main input to many things, not just housing, but childcare uh, being a, a prominent one. And so, you know, if you want to live in DC and if you're a working class family, you're not in that knowledge sector then you pretty much have to have a two-income two household to afford it. And that, to me, is a more plausible story where it's actually this this bidding were, uh, caused mainly by regional migration to cities. Uh, that, that spurs a bidding war because land is intrinsically scarce, and that pushes more families to either you know, move away or both parents or, or spouses to have to work to survive. And, you know, so, so my point in that piece was to say, look, and actually I think maybe, maybe the Warren team listened because my, uh, I basically said, look, if you want to escape the middle income trap, you, or the two income trap, you should, you know, think about doing something more along industrial policy where, where we de-emphasize the current framework, which has promoted financialization, uh, promoted these intangible sectors and 
do more to promote more tangible sectors like manufacturing, but not just manufacturing, anything that can be done that produces strong wages and, and, and high productivity outputs, but doesn't have to take place in these sort of half a dozen magnet cities. Uh, because if you did that, then there'd be more demand. You know, there'd be places where people who wanted to have a more traditional family could live and work without missing out on economic growth. And I think that's something that you know the, the Rubio team has definitely listened to and is one of the motivations behind their push as well. So you know, uh, Oren Cass is this concept of productive pluralism, which I think is a, a great term because it's kind of the suggestion that you know there's lots of lots of ways to be productive and thinking that the only way is to be a knowledge worker in these intangible sectors can be extremely alienating to you know the two-thirds of americans that don't have a college degree and would struggle to afford basic necessities in living in in dc or uh, chicago or boston and so if we're recognizing that pluralism and that pluralism includes the diversity of family styles we have to structure an economy that creates jobs for all those ways of being a producer. And, th- and that goes back to my original point, which is like industrial policies in, is in part thinking about high level outcomes, sort of less about the, this neutral playing field approach and more about saying, well, what, what, what is one of the goals of, of our labor market policy and our, and our whole suite of policies? Well, one of them should be to create high productivity jobs for the whole sweep of human talents and whole sweep of family structures. and that is more consistent with a concept of you know flourishing rather than just maximizing headline GDP. It is interesting. I was looking the other day at statistics related to stay-at-home moms, and it it basically is kind of a, a U-shaped curve where the percentage of stay-at-home moms is much higher among the very poor and the very rich. Uh, so like the labor force participation rate for female Harvard MBA grads is like, I think it's, it might be like below 50% or something because the rest of them are married to male Harvard MBA grads who are making, you know, 500,000 or whatever a year or something more. But if you're in the middle, it does seem like, you know, because of housing, uh, healthcare, college costs, uh, other things like that, it's just not a workable option for people, uh, even though you know, obviously there are a lot of women who would like to work full time, but there are also surveys indicate a lot of folks who would like either part time work or to be able to stay home uh, with kids uh, if that were a financially viable option. Yeah, totally. Lyman Stone has done a lot of great work, uh, sort of showing the the gap between stated preferences and actual outcomes. So, you know, most mothers desire to work, but not necessarily full-time. In fact, it seems like the ideal mix includes a high degree of part-time work. And that just is prohibitive for people in this sort of middle section of the economy that are squeezed uh, by the escalation in costs. So we've created a, a kind of stratified economy. You know, one of, you know, Niskanen's other sort of pushes is to discuss ways of, of easing housing restrictions in these major cities that can do a lot to bring down household costs and across all the things that real estate touches. But I don't think it will be sufficient just because without rebalancing the economy away from these select few cities, or, or the, 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 the demand surge is going to be far greater than our ability realistically to increase supply. Um, and this is why I think 
it's important that some conservatives like Tucker or J.D. Vance or this, this sort of more socially conservative background of conservative thinkers are coming around to things like industrial policy because they, they see this rise in, in the kind of Warren Bernie socialism. And, and, and if you look at the details, like the, the, the kind of socialism that they're, they're proposing is like socializing the cost of childcare, socializing the cost of housing and socializing the cost of healthcare. They're basically, it's like this movement, this new, new socialist movement is basically being, um, you know, spurred by the cost of these basic needs and, that's why it's being promoted mainly by sort of middle-class college kids that are graduating into an economy they can't afford. And they look around and they say, well, I can't afford basic housing. This is because of the private market. And we need to basically have massive, massive public housing projects or something like that. And this is, I think, a complete misdiagnosis of the problem. But more importantly, it really points to the need for conservatives and, and others to say, look, the reason we have this massive escalation in costs is partly by design. We've created an economy where you are being forced after you graduate to move to New York to work on Wall Street, even though you have an engineering degree and you'd rather be building robots <laughs> because we don't have uh, the capacity to absorb your STEM degree workers into more productive jobs so that human capital has to go to work on Wall Street or to found a startup. And that's problematic. Like, Instead of taking that as a given, we can think about ways of restructuring the economy such that that human capital can, can be absorbed into different sectors. And if that can take place, then I think both you both reduce a lot of the demand surge in major cities, but also as a byproduct, take a lot of the air out of this sort of neo-socialist push that is being driven by deeper forces than just, you know, capitalism is bad. Yeah, if we had more time, I, I would actually love to dr drill down on that more because, you know, from my perspective, it'd be interesting to have a conversation about why we're not seeing uh, the market respond to, uh, we, have a, we have low mobility, we have concentration um, of opportunities in places like Manhattan, like you said, and Silicon Valley. And, you know, it'd be interesting to explore if that is primarily caused by government restrictions or if that is just the market sort of making decisions on itself that it, on its own uh, that it wants to concentrate so it has uh, a dense population of human capital and such I, I suspect it's probably a blend of the two but i think as a from somebody who's comes from a free market perspective my first instinct is let's see where the government is uh, has its finger on the scale and is maybe impeding uh, mobility and is uh, arbitrarily encouraging concentration. And let's remove those obstacles before moving to sort of a, a Warren approach of, you know, that's more uh, socialism light. Yeah, I broadly agree with that. Like, I think first stages should be removing restrictions on housing before we think about anything else. But there are other ways that we have the finger on the scale that don't get talked about enough. So, you know, this and this goes back to the critique of the kind of neutral policy framework. We think it, we think of it as neutral or you'll, you can go to the Heritage website or the Cato website and see defenses of 401ks and IRAs and say that say basically, oh, this is just this isn't a massive subsidy to the financial sector. This is actually just reducing taxes on savings. And so it's a neutral policy. But in fact, when you, you look deeper at it, it's highly correlated with the rise in asset management fees and is, a, is a, a big finger on the scale of the finance industry. There are multiple ways we can lift the finger off the scale. 
but at the same time, I think we can we can do more to promote smaller cities, mid-tier cities that still are relatively cheap to live in, but could have career opportunities for people with with higher education levels that create spillovers for the surrounding population. So Noah Smith has a uh, has been beating this drum for a long time, saying, you know, we could do more to promote research universities uh, in smaller towns, and to the extent that we probably aren't going to save these small towns of 5,000, creating sort of hub cities that are within their commuting zone, at least, can create spillovers and that benefit that local community, but also take some of the pressure off these major cities. Thanks uh, very much, Sam, for joining us today. Yeah, thank you. And if, in, and if you want to uh, learn more, my website is strugglingregions.com. <laughs>